This is a UCD Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the centre, please visit our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the centre's iTunes page or our media website chomi.org. In this episode, recorded on the 31st of January 2019, Dr. Philomena Gorey of University College Dublin reads her paper entitled Municipal Gospel or Necessity, Belfast Corporation and the Regulation of Midwives, 1911-1918. The chair for this paper was Dr. Kieran McCabe, postdoctoral fellow at University College Dublin. You're all very welcome uh, to our first training seminar of the new year, of the new semester. And it's um, a great uh, pleasure to introduce as our speaker for tonight, one of our own, Dr. Philomena Gorey. Um, Phil completed her PhD here at the School of History in 2014 on a study of the evolution of midwifery in Ireland from the 1600s until 1918. Phil's primary research is on the Episcopal and Institutional Regulation of Irish Midwives. Um, she's published on Purple Fever and Rotunda Hospital, on childhood diseases and also managing midwifery in Dublin. And her latest publication, coming out this year, is a chapter in John Cunningham's edited collection, Early Modern Ireland and the World of Medicine, published by Manchester University Press later this year. And she's currently working on um, a monograph arising from her doctoral um, research. Um, I should also say, um, Phil is also a trained midwife, so there's a nice um, person practical yeah. angle to it as well. Um, okay, Phil. That's great. Thanks, Kieran, And uh, thank you for inviting me to present um, my research here. So in December 1911, the Belfast Corporation Act, which had been introduced to Parliament through a private member's bill, propelled by an amendment to the Municipal Corporations Act, received royal assent. From the 1840s, municipal reform had allowed corporations to reorganise the urban streetscape, reshape town centres and construct public architecture. Historians of Victorian Britain, among them Asa Briggs, Tristram Hunt and Gerald Parsons, noted that the modern industrial city, London, Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, Leeds and Glasgow, with its emphasis on economic individualism, was difficult to reconcile with a common civic purpose. An expanding population with the social consequences of new industrial techniques, pollution and poverty, uh, marked a... a, 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 change from the past. These historians have noted a parallel undertaking of municipal government, underlined particularly by Parsons, where he stated the conviction that local government that was efficient, public-spirited and directed to the well-being of the community as a whole could bring immense benefit to municipal life. This philosophy of civic or municipal gospel can be traced to the teaching of the independent nonconformist preacher George, George Dawson, whose sermons in the Church of the Saviour in Edward Street in Birmingham in the 1850s and 60s brought him into contact with Joseph Chamberlain and members of the city's council. Dawson held that elected authorities were obliged to work for the social and moral well-being of its citizens and saw the modern city as an organic whole whose purpose was to secure an ideal of the good life for all its citizens. Birmingham in particular was the finest example of municipal gospel at work, which saw new provisions for sewage disposal, municipal ownership of gas and water, 
uh, schemes to, to improve the urban environment and slum clearance action on public health and improved educational and cultural facilities, many initiated under Joseph Chamberlain's tenure as mayor. Sean Connolly has examined Belfast for this uh, culture of civic progress. In his essay, Belfast, The Rise and Fall of a Civic Culture, in Alwyn Purdue's edited collection, Belfast, The Emerging City, 1815-1914, Connolly has argued that Belfast's rapid population growth and the extent of its industrial achievements confirms that the city's urban history diverges from that of other Irish towns and cities. In 1909, one in three of the population in Ireland was an urban dweller, whereas in England and Wales, three quarters of inhabitants lived in towns and cities. By 1911, Belfast was the United Kingdom's eighth largest urban centre. Belfast Corporation's record in urban reconstruction saw the landscape of the city alter to accommodate everyday life for its citizens. The Harbour Office was constructed in 1854, the Custom House in 1857, expansion of the commercial centre took place throughout the 50s and 60s, the construction of Victoria Street and Queen's Bridge in the 1860s, the Town Hall in 72, Royal Avenue in the 80s, and in the late 1880s, Belfast Corporation built a network of sewers. Albert Bridge then was constructed in 1890. This was in contrast with the poverty that existed in working class areas. The city had witnessed a period of unprecedented growth, which saw the population increase from 71,000 in 1841 to 380,000 in 1911. In the area of public health and sanitation, the record of municipal administration was less successful. Much of the housing in the city was built to reasonable standards, but slum conditions endured. The slums were not as extensive as Dublin, but thousands of families lived in cramped, unsanitary dwellings away from the prosperous streets and squares. Uh, the overall death rate in Belfast, though higher than Leeds and Sheffield, uh, Bristol and Birmingham, was similar to Manchester and Liverpool. The city suffered abnormally high levels of respiratory diseases linked to conditions in the textile mills and typhoid linked to the consumption of shellfish polluted by sewage in Belfast Lock. Uh, the uh, corporation, sorry, this is just a, a slide of the um, average numbers of deaths from typhoid and enteric fe fever uh, between 1881 and 1905. So the corporation was compelled to deal with the consequences of this exceptional growth. By 1908, the Belfast Health Commission, at the instigation of the Local Government Board for Ireland, had reported on the health of the city and its population. The commission which included five officers with engineering and medical backgrounds, was established to investigate the causes of the high death rate. It conducted a survey of the agencies responsible for public health and to make recommendations to improve the health of its population. So the Commission looked at um, the Organisation Administration of Public Health at, B at Belfast Corporation, the city's water supply, main drainage and sewage disposal, the control of milk, uh, housing, arrangements for the Board of Guardians for dealing with sickness and infectious diseases, sanitary conditions of elementary schools and the contamination of shellfish in Belfast Law. The Commission reported that the death rate in the city, when compared with that of the majority of larger cities in the United Kingdom, was excessive. It concluded that mortality was caused largely by diseases that were preventable. In 1910, the local health association 
proceeded with important public health and sanitation regulations, which included provision for the control and regulation of midwives. This paper will explore one aspect of the measures taken by Belfast uh, Corporation's public health department, the registration and regulation of midwives working within the city's boundaries. It will examine the origins and contemporary debates around safe childbirth and infant mortality uh, that compelled the corporation to act. It will discuss the requirements uh, of, for registration and evaluate the scheme until the Midwives Ireland Act was passed in 1918. Towards the end of 1919 and the beginning of 1920, there was an epidemic of purple infection in the city and the paper will assess the inquiry that was held by the local government board in its aftermath. Finally, the paper will endeavour to locate the midwife professionally and socially following the passing of the 1918 legislation. Lindsay Erna Byrne's analysis of maternity and child welfare in Dublin, 1922-1960, explores government and church policy toward maternal and infant welfare. The analysis highlights the complexity of motherhood through pregnancy, childbirth and the rearing of children, as mothers negotiated limited official relief and informal welfare, welfare services to secure protection for their families. Brooke Hegarty, in her survey of Nursing Notes, the British Midwives Institute monthly journal, contends that working class mothers came in for particular scrutiny as they considered obstacles that working class mothers, uh, sorry, in, to provide a stable and ordered environment for their families. More frequently, journal articles blamed the mother for her, her own plight and focused on reforming her behaviour uh, rather than considering the need for any systematic changes. Publication by Ruth Barrington and uh, Mel Cousins shed light on the development of social welfare in Ireland. And finally, Hilary Marland and Anne-Marie Rafferty's edited collection, Midwife Society in Childbirth, draws together essays which examine debates and controversies in the modern period, such as que questions about the competence and status of midwives as childbirth attendants, providers of healthcare and women workers, when scope of practice was redefined throughout the 20th century. So as soon as the Act was passed, the corporation set improving about the health of the city. Uh, it, among the proposed public health and sanitary measures, were provisions for the reg regulation of premises engaged in the sale of food, conferring of further powers for the inspection of meat in slaughterhouses and the seizure of meat, the transport of milk, restrictions on the collection of shellfish from Belfast Lock, the requirement of registers of births and deaths in the city to make returns to the corporation, and regulation and control of midwives practising in the city. So why was midwifery included in this drive to regulate milk? Uh, slaughterhouses and the sale of food, I would suggest that a number of pressing issues which centred on childbirth, infant mortality and motherhood were coming together around this time to ensure that the concerns raised influenced and remained at the forefront of the public health agenda. A background to this and an indication as to why the corporation took matters into its own hands was the Midwives Act of 1902. It established a central midwives board for England and Wales which would regulate the issue of certificates, uh, keep a register, uh, design courses of training and examinations, and generally to supervise the effective administration of the profession. Power to supervise midwives at local level was given to county and borough councils who held records of, of local practitioners and were to report any suspected uh, malpractice by the midwife to the board. 
1902 Act was never intended to extend to Ireland or indeed to Scotland. A delegation from the College of Physicians attended the, Gov the College of Physicians in Dublin, attended the, the um, government appointed select, select Committee in 1892, which examined the question of compulsory registration of midwives. The college contended that Irish women who wished to train as midwives were adequately served by training institutions in Ireland, but lacked the educational capacity to belong to a registered body. In the aftermath of the Act, it became apparent the extent to which Irish midwives would be restricted and disbarred from seeking work abroad. The legislation did not include a reciprocal arrangement for Ireland, so that midwives wanting to work in England or the colonies would have to train and sit the, uh, sit the Central Midwives Board exam in England, which had the effect of disqualifying Irish midwives from practising abroad. Three attempts were made between 1904 and 1910 by powerful lob lobbies to resolve the matter, among them uh, the College of Physicians, Thomas Stafford, Medical Commissioner of the Irish Local Government Board, Masters of the Maternity Hospitals, the Irish Matrons Association, Queen Victoria Jubilee Institute, the Chief Secretary, Augustine Burrell, also, <coughs> a hand in, ha also had a hand in trying to secure legislation. In Parliament, Maurice Healy, Member of the Irish Parli Parliamentary uh, Party for the Borough of Cork, asked Ladstone if he was aware that the Midwives Act, as at present administered by the Central Midwives Board, was being used as a measure of preventing Irish midwives from practising in England. The only dissenting voice was Francis Kidd, chairman of the Lenser branch of the Irish Medical Association. In a letter to the Council of the Association, he addressed the subject, highlighting the complex relationship between the poor law medical officer and the medical hierarchy regarding midwife registration. His letter stated that, and I quote, um, the proposal establishes a body of practitioners with inferior qualifications who to some extent compete with medical men and that it fails to provide that remuneration should be given to doctors who are summoned by midwives to attend in complicated cases. All efforts failed, even the, the hope that the Central Midwife Board exams would be held in Dublin to facilitate Irish midwives. The board was not returning. Its reason being that it could not accede to the request on the grounds that exams could not take place outside an area defined by the Act and that it would be acting beyond the board's legal authority to hold exams in anywhere, anywhere except in centres in England and Wales. I would argue that the Women's National Health Association which was founded in 1907 by Francis Carruthers, Lady Aberdeen, wife of the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland, was the earliest and most vital organisation in the drive to reduced infant mortality. It focused on three areas of healthcare, uh, to prevent the spread of tuberculosis and to promote its cure, to reduce infant mortality and to promote school hygiene. And I'll be dealing with uh, uh, infant mortality. Over 170 branches were formed throughout the country. The Belfast branch of the association was founded in 1907 and uh, the aim of the committee was to stem deaths from, uh, from, uh, of infants under one year in the city. So um, baby clubs were uh, opened, the first one being in Divis Dev Street in March 1908, another in Newtown Ards Road in May of that year and a third in York Street. And the figures here... Um, illustrate the immediate su success of the scheme. And I just have a picture here of um, women outside St. Monica's Baby Club here in Dublin, actually. I couldn't find one, one at Belfast, but that's, that's, that's Dublin. Um, Augustine Street, I'm not even sure where that is in Dublin. Anyway, 
mothers would bring their babies under one year old to the club once a week, where the child was weighed to record and trace its progress. For this, a mother uh, paid a halfpenny, which went into a fund to support the work of the association. The committee sold garments, warm knitted vests and, and cots, which were constructed from banana boxes, which actually were strongly recommended as a means of preventing suffocation of the baby, should a baby be in a bed with others. So mothers were given advice by health visitors on feeding, cleanliness, proper clothing, suitable bottles, bathing and dressing an infant and on sewing and cutting out garments. Once a mother brought her baby to the club, she usually continued to attend every week. Mothers were encouraged to breastfeed their babies, but should bottle feeding become a necessity, suitable bottles were sold at a nominal price. And the milk supplied cost two and six a month. And for babies receiving milk, a trained nurse or dispensary midwife visited the home each week. Secondly, a survey by the association found that large numbers of unqualified midwives practiced in rural dispensary districts. The association put a proposal to boards of guardians that it would endeavour through its branches to provide funding to bring a qualified midwife salary up to a pound a week with a bicycle and an allowance uh, for a uniform on certain conditions. And the conditions were that um, if, uh, if not attending births, that midwives uh, should work under the direction of the local Women Women's National Health Association, that she would supervise the mother after the child's birth, uh, given the opportunity uh, to train mothers in the, tra in the care of infants and young children, and that people needing the service of a midwife should actually pay a nominal fee to the health association, and that, that some plan for the inspection of midwives be devised should a midwife registration act not be enacted in Ireland. At this time also, the Central Health Conference of Local Authorities took place in Dublin, where a motion proposed by Sir John Byers, Professor of Midwifery at Queen's University, Belfast, and seconded by Andrew Horne, Master of Hollis Street, was their proposal was adopted, stating that the scheme outlined by the, by the association was to be recommended for careful consideration by the local government board and by boards of guardians. Thirdly, uh, the 1911 National Insurance Act included maternity benefit, which represented a payment of 30 shillings on the birth of a child. The act was modified to meet Irish welfare needs. It specified that a mother could choose to be delivered by a qualified medical practitioner or a certified midwife, and that insured mothers who were incapable of work were entitled to sickness benefit. But the Midwives Registration Act had not been extended to Ireland, as we know, and since qualification for benefit insisted on a trained midwife attending the mother, sorry, attending the mother, the Irish National Health Insurance Commissioners adopted the same qualifications that were required by the local government board. And that was that um, persons having obtained uh, re recognition by lying in hospital, the local government board, or a person uh, otherwise um, could, could be continued in a role of midwives, provided that neither the qualifications shall be necessary in the case of any person who holds or holds, uh, sorry, or has held at that date of order 1891, the office of midwife on a, sorry, in a dispensary district or workhouse in Ireland, and that all persons had uh, reached the age of, of 23. So the hospitals that were recognised, as you see there, were the Rotunda, the Coombe, Hollis Street, Patrick Dunn's, Belfast Maternity, Belfast Lying Inn, Cork Maternity, Cork Infirmary and Limerick, Limerick Lying Inn. And there was a question of Waterford, but actually um, Waterford didn't make it through with, after many appeals because it just wasn't big enough. 
Finally, uh, fa fourthly, the Notification of Births Act in 1907 uh, was the first step in enabling local authorities to require that all births be registered and to try and compile uh, statistics on maternal and infant morbidity and mortality. The legislation wasn't extended to Ireland. Uh, Dublin adopted the Act's legisla legislative me measures in 1910 uh, under pressure again by the Women's National Health Association and uh, the Infant Aid Society. So when the Act became pulsory in 1915, urban and local authorities could recoup 50% of their spending on maternity and child welfare schemes to a maximum of £5,000 a year. Finally, the 1911 uh, Education of Girls Act was to give better educational facilities to women. It was to open the benefits of universities and colleges to women and also uh, to lay the foundation of greater uh, equality. The Act also encouraged the instruction of girls in domestic training and in midwifery. Clause 5 stipulated that the Board of Education was to encourage the training of midwives under the Midwives Act of 1902 by grants to the Central Midwives Board for the, for the purpose of training. The only dissenting voice uh, was a, a, an article from uh, the British Journal of Nursing Supplement in September uh, 1912 in support of midwives which derided Belfast Corporation for the suddenness of the legislation without any consultation with parties who would be affected by the legislation. Uh, the article wrote, quote, it is a serious menace of bodies to bodies of women at, a pre at the present day that corporations may introduce private bills into Parliament which closely affect their professional life and work without those concerned knowing anything about them until they are the laws of the realm. So on January 1st, 1913, the powers of the corporation to control midwives practising in the city came into being. A board, was, a board was established called the Midwives Board for Belfast, with 11 members appointed, uh, two more than the Central Midwives Board in England, and with representatives from the Public Health Committee, Belfast Poor Law so Union, the Ulster Medical Society, Northern Ireland branch of the British Medical Association, a Senate uh, from by the Senate of Queen's University and one woman whom I actually have been able to identify. There was no midwife representative. The Act was similar to the English and Scottish Acts. Um, the Scottish Act incidentally had been passed in 1916 and it provided that no woman, unless she be certified under this part of this act, the Act, shall within the city attend women at childbirth, otherwise than under the direction of a qualified medical practitioner or take the use or use the title of midwife. Uh, or any name, title, addition or description implying that she is certified or is a person specially qualified to practice midwifery or is recognised by law as a midwife. Any woman so acting without being so certified or during any period for which her certificate may have been withdrawn shall be liable on summary conviction to a fine not exceeding £5 provided that this section shall not apply to legally qualified medical practitioners or to anyone rendering assistance in case of emergency. So three classes of midwives were entitled to claim admission to the role. The first class were awarded um, certificate, a, certificate A there on the left, whereby the midwife could practice by virtue of a certificate in midwifery granted to her by a recognised lying-in hospital. Um, the image of the right there actually is one belonging to Mary Knox actually from um, Belfast Lying-in Hospital in 1882. But I thought it was interesting that it says there that she had qualified in the obstetric art. So, uh, Certificate B, sorry, oh, sorry, yeah, C Certificate 
B was granted to um, midwives under the regulation of the local government board and certificate C there to the women who could prove that they um, had satisfied the corporation that she was a bona fide mid in bona fide practice as a midwife for a period of three years prior to 16th of December 1911 and that she was of good character. Now bona fide midwives were women who had been in practice without training but had learned their skills from another midwife or through experience. This clause of the Act, while very contentious during the Commission on Midwifery Registration and continuing debates around registration in Ireland, offered uh, the protection of their livelihoods to these women. The last uh, form uh, was, was uh, to verify that the midwife was trustworthy, sober and of good moral character, to be signed by three referees and by the midwife herself. There were also conditions for the removal of uh, a name from, from the role. So in addition to these rules and regulations sanctioned by the local government board, the corporation issued a pamphlet entitled Directions for Midwives. These directions concerned the midwife's personal cleanliness, her dress, her instruments, the disinfection of her hands and the steps to be taken in case the midwife had been in contact with, another mother, with a mother suffering from purple fever. They dealt with the midwife's duty to her patient and to the child and prohibited her, except in under certain circumstances, from laying out the dead. If a midwife attended a case of purple septicemia, she wasn't allowed to see any other maternity cases until her patient either recovered or died. Then she, her clothing and instruments were disinfected at the disinfecting station at Lagerbank Road. The directions also dealt with the notifications which were to be sent to the Medical Superintendent Officer of Health, Harold Bailey, uh, form A to be used when medical help was sent, sent for, form B was the notification of death, C notification of stillbirth and D notification of having laid out the dead. They also prescribed that the midwife should keep a register of her cases and provide for their inspection. In the immediate aftermath of the Act, 107 applicants were qualified for enrolment by virtue of having passed the ex an examination and holding a certificate by a recognised examining body but 117 women were approved under the bona fide clause. So what did these midwives do? There were approximately 40 deliveries in the borough each day. Pregnant women applied to the corporation for assistance and a midwife would be assigned to her care. The little evidence we have of antenatal care focused on the health of the mother, particularly as many women worked up to about three days before delivery. The midwife would be called when labour started and if the labour and delivery were normal, the midwife would register the birth and ideally uh, attend the mother and baby for 10 days afterwards at intervals of about, every, of about every third day. During this visit, the midwife recorded the mother's pulse and temperature and noted her lochia. If a labour was complicated, and this usually meant prolonged labour uh, with abnormal presentations, the doctor was called. Eight female inspectors were engaged as health visitors. In January 1914, a female sanitary inspector with midwifery qualifications, Miss Maud Smith, was appointed to supervise the work of midwives. She worked mainly with the bona fide midwives. One of her first tasks was to take, make 28 visits to some of these women to inspect their homes, their personal cleanliness and how they were carrying out the directions of the corporation. 
If midwives were deemed to need further instruction, tuition was given on the use of antiseptics, sterilising appliances, the taking of temperature and pulse, and the keeping of records. Maud Smith noted that in some cases, instruction was difficult owing to the incapacity of the certified midwife, either through old age or her lack of education. This bears out the evidence from annual reports uh, of the local government board from the later 19th century and early 20th century that many midwives who were in receipt of pensions on retiring could well be in their 70s with 20 years service, indicating that they might not have entered midwifery until their 30s or 40s. In 1917, the Lord Mayor sanctioned a scheme for the establishment of maternity and child welfare centres in in Belfast, exactly what the Women's National Health Association had been doing with the baby clubs for 10 years. Six such centres were were set up with a lady superintendent, a trained nurse and with midwifery experience, a part-time medical practitioner and a health visitor in attendance. During home visits, the nurse and health visitor noted the health of older children, referred younger and healthy children or children suffering from illnesses to the medical practitioner and advised expectant mothers on their own health. Harold Bailey made particular note of the health of expectant cases among the wives and labourers of the poorer classes. Health visitors and nurses advised mothers on personal hygiene, nourishing foods and how to cook them and the absolute necessity of breastfeeding. They ran antenatal and postnatal clinics, established mother and baby groups, creches and milk depots. All in all, it was hoped that the work would be preventative rather than curative, and that those measures would improve infant mortality, which still uh, indicated very, very stark figures altogether, and infant mortality was really very, very slow to come down uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. So in 1914, um, the Women's Cooperative Guild in Britain, which was very similar in uh, structure and operation as the Women's National Association here. So in a short title entitled The National Care of Maternity, proposed a scheme whereby one agency would link the home to municipal authorities in a service that would ensure maternity care and the care of children up to school going age, all organised under one public health authority. To illustrate their point, a diagram was created um, which highlighted the connection of the home uh, with with the state, uh, with the state, with uh, municipal and voluntary agencies, which made it clear what they termed the invasion of the home was intolerable. As you can see there, all the various boards of guardians, voluntary and charitable agencies, um, insurance, local health authority, everybody all the arrows, everybody arriving into the home. Um, so um, so these health visitors and all these people arriving into the home fundamentally um, were there to check sanitary conditions, ventilation and space, supervise infants and the instruction of mothers in the care of babies, visits to foster homes and boarded out children and the supervision of midwives, the establishment of milk depots and the enforcement of the Notification of Births Act. The Guild called for maternity benefit to be withdrawn from approved societies and administered instead by the Public Health Authority. It demanded state benefit for mothers, insisting that women have a strong strong a case for assistance as any other workers on state assistance during sickness. The Guild was well placed to caution against this invasion of the home. It had surveyed 400 of its poorer members and in a pamphlet entitled Maternity Letters from Working Women, 
they published 160 letters from women who described the difficulties they faced with multiple pregnancies, caring uh, for infants and the struggle to make ends meet. At this time as well, about 1917, the Carnegie Trust funded a comprehensive and detailed report um, called the Report on the Physical Welfare of Mothers and Children throughout the United Kingdom, which was completed in 1917. Edward Coe Bigger authored the volume for Ireland and included a section by Dr Marion Andrews on maternity and child welfare in Belfast County Borough. So the survey recommended the necessity for maternal and infant health and the need for education under a coordinated scheme uh, for implementation. The Midwives Ireland Act was passed in 1918 and the power of Belfast Corporation to enrol midwives lapsed on the 1st of January 1919. During the six years that it regulated midwives, the corporation employed an average of 230 women, which in included retirements and appointments, with a handful struck off the roll for not adhering to the rules of the corporation. So these figures illustrate that during the time, the numbers of bona fide midwives only reduced to about one third. Little could be done, um, sorry, there was significant success with the reduction in deaths from purple septicemia. Little, little could be done though about other causes of mortality during the puerperium. These deaths uh, were as a result of a combination of abnormalities of labour, including placenta previa and postpartum haemorrhage. So the rights of midwives on the corporation role in Belfast were included in the new enactment. The new act established a central midwives board for Ireland, consisting of 11 members, with Edward Coy Bigger as its chairman. The county and county borough councils became the local supervising authority. An important provision of the act ensured Irish midwives had reciprocal conditions of employment, similar to midwives in Great Britain and the colonies, where the Midwives Act was already in force. There were 11 members on the board, including four women. Jenny Kelly, matron of the Belfast Maternity Hospital, Mary Blunden from the Cork Lying-In Hospital, and Anne Meachie, who was sub superintendent of the Queen's Institute for Jubilee Nurses, and Je Genevieve O'Carroll, uh, matron of the Coom. But the new legisl legislation did not sit well with the Maternal and Child Welfare Dep Committee on the Corporation of Belfast. 62 of the 125 midwives from Belfast Corporation that were placed on the role in Ireland uh, had been in practice in the city without training. In October 1919, the corporation um, espoused the belief that midwives intending to practice in the city should be approved by their committee before being enrolled in the Central Midwives Board in, in Ireland, giving the example of a bona, bona fide midwife who could not read or write. The secretary of the Central Midwives Board, Joseph Devlin, responded, outlining that it had no power to delegate its function to any other power. A further complaint, citing a prima facie case of disobedience of the rules, had been established against a Mrs Hamilton in Belfast. The committee requested that her conduct be investigated. Then the officer, uh, medical officer of health, Harl Bailey, wrote to the board stating that the Belfast committee was not quite satisfied with the working of the Central Midwives Board in their relationship with, with their committee asking for an interview between a deputation from Belfast and representatives of a central midwives board in Dublin. But before anything became of this disaster struck in Belfast towards the end of 1919, uh, in the form of an epidemic of purple, purple infection. On the 20th of February 1920, the Public Health Department of the Corporation noted an abnormal increase 
in the notifications of purple septicemia. In December 1919 and into January and February 1920, 22 no 21 notifications of infection were received by the department, two in December, six in January and 13 in February. Of that number of 21, 15 deaths occur and six mothers recovered. These figures were stark when, uh, when measured against notifications in previous years. In the years 1915, 16, 17 and 18, the entire number of notifications was 23. In the year 1919, uh, there was a phenomenal rise to 23 notifications, equal to the number in the previous four years. The corporation asked for the assistance of the local government board and an inquiry held by Dr John McCloy, a medical inspector of the board, took place in March 1920. It was hoped that it would trace the origin of the disease and elicit information that would lead to precautionary and, uh, preventative, uh, and uh, preventative measures in the future. Twelve doctors and a combination of twelve midwives and health visitors were interviewed, including Harold Bailey and uh, Maud Smith. Uh, just to say that the detailed evidence was given about the way records were kept, about uh, particularly with regard to uh, temperatures and uh, pulses. Witnesses were asked if they had been in touch with uh, scarlet fever or indeed a sore throat, and they gave detailed um, details of precautions they took actually in, 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 in um, cleansing themselves and in um, disinfecting themselves. But three cons uh, features were conspicuous. Firstly, evidence pointed to a delay in notifying births. In almost every case, there was a lax attitude to this. Instead of sending in notification within a period of 36 hours, as provided by the Act, in some cases, a period of three weeks to a month elapsed before notification. There were approximately 40 births in Belfast every day. With a lapse of 10 days, that would mean that 400 births needed to be notified, which left a greater potential for omission. The importance of getting the notification in early was emphasised so that arrangements could be made for the midwife or health visitor to call on the mother. These postnatal visits enabled them to detect symptoms of purple fever. Secondly, of greater concern were failures under the Notification of Diseases Act. In many cases, a considerable length of time elapsed uh, between the birth and the notification of purple infection. Delays in this regard were detrimental to the mother with the danger of septicemia and death, particularly since maternal morbidity was not widely practised outside maternity hospitals in domiciliary midwifery. Although the mother and infant were in the care of the midwife for 10 days after delivery, the interval between notification and death in many cases was short, suggesting that the mother was ill for some days before the infection was recognised. Moreover, late notification and infection meant that the midwife would not be relieved of duty, would not go through the disinfection process and was liable to carry infection to other patients. But in the case of Belfast, four of the women who developed purple infection were delivered in hospital and three of those mothers died, notwithstanding asepsis and the utmost cleanliness in the hospital setting. Thirdly, there was a suggestion that the 1918 Midwives Act had opened the door to bona fide midwives again, resulting in a considerable influx of practically untrained and incapable women. The inquiry emphasised that midwives should be capable, knowledgeable and trained. When the Act was passed and they applied for registration, the local government board had no power to refuse them and were obliged to place them on the role of midwives. Blame was not apportioned to them 
although the inquiry was sympathetic, it concluded that their lack of knowledge and training led to incapable women being responsible and in control of um, childbirth. Not all women died of purple fever. Maternity hospitals began to record purple morbidity, a rise of temperature in the days after delivery from the 1880s. Mild parexia was seen as a physiological process. Um, the Rotunda's baseline was 100.8 and Hastings Tweedy suggested to the uh, British Medical Association that uh, a baseline of uh, 99 to 100 degrees and a pulse of um, not more than 90 in three uh, successive recordings over three successive days and continuing for 24 hours constituted a morbid state. However, I would argue that the purple, purple infection could not be avoided, even with aseptic practice. The Streptococcus hemolyticus, or the B. hemolytic Streptococcus Lansfield Group A, was classified in the 1920s by Rebecca Lansfield, the American bacteriologist who developed the system for classifying Streptococci that bears her name as it still is in use today. Purple fever was among the diseases which were caused by the bacteria, including among them erysipelas, scarlet fever, pharyngitis and tonsillitis. By 1935, Dora Colebrook and Ronald Hare had rec recognised the carryability of the group A streptococcus, providing evidence that organisms were very frequently transmitted, not directly from a primary source of hands, instruments and clothing, but from the throat or nose of a healthy individual. 1935, there were also um, tests with dyes and uh, these were published and the dye, a, a dye named Prontosil was developed and this uh, dye successfully completed clinical trials which actually uh, followed in the result, resulted in Prontosil which was the beginning of the sulphur drugs. So the last epidemic that occurred in the rotunda actually in 1936 um, 14 cases were isolated and four women died, a mortality rate of 28%. The outbreak coincided with the wave of streptococcal throat infections in the hospital and in and around Dublin. Throat swabs were taken from the medical and nursing personnel and from 10 of the 14 women uh, of, of cases of purple sepsis. Seven mothers were found to be positive for hemolytic streptococcus. Among the 25 medical staff, three grew uh, streptococcus and uh, out of the 72 nurses, um, I think there were about 20 nurses. So the last patient to become infected during this final phase of the epidemic was the first patient to be treated with Prontosil at the hospital and was cured of infection. So in conclusion, just uh, position the midwife professionally and socially. Brooke Hegarty has argued that in Britain, the Midwives Institute, many of whom had political and commercial um, connections, sought to advance, uh, sorry, distance themselves from the rank and file midwife after registration. I found no evidence of that here in Ireland. The closest comparison would be to the lady superintendents uh, of the voluntary hospitals, many of whom had trained abroad and were dedicated to their task of managing hospitals and training pupils here in Ireland. Furthermore, the secretary of the board of the Central Midwives Board, Joseph Devlin, became in and ill and died suddenly in 1924. His secretary, Miss Myler, got his job at his, same, at his salary, £300 per annum, and a Miss Blood got the post as assistant to Miss Myler. So in the new Irish state, women were in a position to exert some influence on the direction of nursing and midwifery. However, this, did not, this, this didn't continue beyond the 1930s. In the implementation of the Midwives Act was carried out at local level. In Dublin, external domiciliary part, departments in the hospitals 
uh, absolved the poor law guardians of that responsibility. Midwives continued to be appointed to dispensary districts. By 1920, there were 108 employed by the local government board. Their distribution, though, was uneven and their caseloads small. The board estimated that many midwives attended as few as 21 cases annually on the dispensary ticket. Explanations offered for this was that the labouring classes were in comfortable circumstances and would prefer to pay a small fee to the midwife of, of their choice, which usually was the bona fide midwife. And then many services, of course, were supplemented by district nursing associations, including the Jubilee nurses and the, the, the Dudley nurses over in the West. After independence, a Central Midwives Board for Northern Ireland was formed and the Free State Board became the Central Midwives Board of Searstot Erin without any jurisdiction over its counterpart in the North. I found no evidence that midwives had formed a cohesive organisation of mutual support uh, before the 1918 Act. The Nurses Act was passed in 1918. Immediately afterwards, uh, the formation of the Irish Nurses Union represented both nurses and midwives. It was aligned closely with the Irish Women's, Women's Workers' Trade Union, encouraged by its General Secretary, Louis Bennett. The most urgent demand for midwives was to have conditions of employment and salary standardised. An increase in salary to £100 annually, travelling expenses, compulsory superannuation and 31 days holiday a year were called for. Another demand was the cooperation of medical men in refusing to work with untrained midwives who had not been certified by examination ridding the profession of the untrained handywomen who effectively were in competition with midwives was to be a core priority of the union over the next number of years. Numerous representations to county councils, uh, uh, the Central Midwives Board the, um, and the Minister for Local Government were made. Members were encouraged to use every means to educate the public to the dangers of, um, the dangers of these women. So... Just the very last thing I'm going to say is that the Midwives 1918 Act laid the foundation for the professional development of midwifery in Ireland. The campaign for registration captured interprofessional rivalries, which usually centred around competition. Like previous campaigns for professional status, debates and ultimatums usually led to negotiation and consensus. The prize of legislation was the first steps towards professionalisation. Harold Perkins' study of the rise of professional society in England since 1880 looks at how occupations formerly thought beyond the reach of professional aspiration demanded the status and rewards of a profession with the benefits of and income security and, and welfare protect, protection. Chris Nottingham made a further distinction uh, within professional society, differentiating between the higher professions of medicine and the law and what he termed insecure professionals, the individuals who worked in emerging fields of education, health and the civil service, who formed the core of middle-class society. Whichever model uh, midwifery fitted into, the midwife had achieved the most outward expression of her status and identity, that was recognition of her profession through legislation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.